0: On an overcast day in 2013 in Florida, there was a man living in a home that his family had lived in for generations when all of a sudden uh, he lost his life as a sinkhole was opened up and swallowed the home. A very tragic event. They say in Florida there's limestone under the earth's uh, surface and over a period of time, an exposure to acidic rainfall that is thinning out. And there are pockets and places in the state where uh, the home's foundation which is really inadequate uh, for the homes gives way uh, to these sinkholes and they fall in. And keep that in mind today. Uh, Gordon MacDonald is an author and he talks about this. He says, "Hey, we have two lives. We've got what we he would call the outer life and the inner life. The outer life is your social networks, the people that you relate to. It's your job, it's your accomplishments, it's your it's your money, it's your uh, possessions, it's everything on the outside of our lives." Says your inner life, though, that's where your character is formed. That's where you're being shaped into who you're going to be. That's where certain things take place in your heart and in your mind. Um, And if you're not careful, uh, you can neglect the outer life at the expense of the inner life at the expense of the outer life. He writes these words. The result is that our private world, our inner life, is often cheated and neglected because it does not shout quite so loudly as the things on the outside. It can be effectively ignored for large periods of time before it gives way to a sinkhole-like cave-in. Before you know it, the more you neglect the formation of your character on the inside and you just put out something on the outside for people to see or you just pay attention to the outside things in your life, before you know it, the foundation's being withered over and over and over again. And then finally a storm comes that compromises the integrity of the foundation you're building your life on. And a sinkhole of character, a major catastrophe in your life takes place and it compromises your character. This is why we're preaching this series on the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, who's simply writing a letter called Galatians to a church that had been really exposed to a lot of pressure in their culture, the Roman culture had really pressured the church in Galatia. This dog-eat-dog type world, this is number, look out for number one, make your achievements, go after all of your goals at any expense. That's the Roman culture. As a matter of fact. If you've heard the phrase, the, climb the social ladder, that originated in Rome. This idea that no matter what it took, you had to get to the next rung on the ladder. You had to get more exposure, more power, more influence, more money. Everything is about taking that next step. And it doesn't matter who you have to step on to get there. It doesn't matter what you have to compromise to get there. It doesn't matter what you have to give up to get there. Make sure that you get to that goal no matter what. And for the life of me, I can't think of another culture in the world that's been anything like that and any kind of pressure that would be on people to do that, but this is the world Paul lived in. This church in Galatia had had this letter arrive from the Apostle Paul that was really pleading with them to pay attention to their inner self. He's really talking to them about, hey, make sure you pay attention to what's going on on the inside, not just all this stuff that the culture's telling you to pay attention to around you. And he really pleads with them, and we've been taking uh, the last few weeks looking at Paul's spiritual fruit basket, if you will. And each week we're taking a piece out and examining it and saying, okay, this is what Paul says the Holy Spirit wants to develop in our life. What does it mean? What does it look like? Why does, that, why does he want that to be a part of what we're building our life on? Why is that so foundational to the formation of Christian character? And so these are some of the pieces of fruit that he talks about in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now we've looked at the first three of these, love, joy, and peace, and they're kind of hard to measure. They're a little more philosophical in nature. They're hard to put like a a measure to it and say, okay, how well are you doing at love and joy and peace? And so we've kind of explored those and how they're really incorporated into the Christian life, and now we get to this one that's a little more gritty. It's a little more personal. It's a little more practical. It's a, a little bit easier to measure. It's patience. It's the least favorite one. There are times when you get up to preach. And you feel like, okay, like I'm going to teach. There are other times you get up to preach and you're like, I don't know that I'm the right guy for this. I feel kind of inadequate teaching. Today's one of those days. Because I don't know about you guys. Let me me ask you this. How many of you would say you're a patient person? Raise your hand. And don't take time to raise your hand. It's not a good joke. (laughs) Anybody? How many of you would say that you're married to a patient person? That's a freebie, guys. All right? That's a softball pitch. Put your hand up. Okay? All right. So me, I'm not patient. I've not really been patient. It's not a characteristic people would use to describe me in my life. I mean, all kinds of situations can paint this picture. Some of you know this about me, but when I got uh, engaged to my wife, I was not a very patient person with this. Her dad, David, uh, was flying to Tampa, Florida, to perform a wedding, and we were both in college in Florida at the time. And just so happens, Sarah was on the volleyball team at the college, and they had a uh, tournament in Tampa. And so I was like, all right, I don't have anything going on this weekend. I'll come over and watch the tournament. And, And that's, in my mind, I'm like, that's where I'll ask your dad if I can marry you. I'd only met her dad like two times, and I was scared to death of him. And so we arrive uh, at this volleyball tournament. We're sitting up in the bleachers, and I couldn't get the words out. Man, I was so nervous. It was like, instead of saying what you would normally say to like, the person you're asking if you can marry their only daughter, you would normally say, like, hey, I love her. Here's why I love her. Here's my plan. Here's what I'd like to do. Here's why I love your family. I'm so all that came out of my mouth was, Sarah, pretty, rub, love her. Like, it was just pathetic. <laughs> it was really, really pathetic, okay? And he cut me off, and he's like, he's like look, Like, you're struggling. Uh, We'd love for you to be a part of the family. I'm like, praise the Lord. (laughs) So then I lied to her, which is always good to start out. Uh, So I told her a lie. She said, Hey, did you and my dad have a serious talk? I was like, A serious talk at a volleyball game? Who would do that? No. And so then we leave, and the guy calls me on the way back from Tampa. I had her ring designed by a friend, and the friend's like, Hey, the ring's done. You can come get it. And I'm like, Oh, sweet. Okay. So I lied to her again and said, I got to run an errand. Uh, And so I dropped her off at the school, and I went and got, Uh, the ring, and I told her it was something for the church that I was working at at the time. It wasn't. I got the ring, and then I came back, and my roommates were there, and I said, dude, I got the ring. I'm so excited. Her dad said, yeah. Well, when did her dad say yes? This morning. So what are your plans? I said, like, tonight. Like, I'm going to ask her tonight. Like, what? You kidding me? I got yes. I got ring. I'm going in. Like, this is, we're doing this. And they're like, no, dude, you got to make this So I was like, no, I got it. And so I went, and I knocked on her door, and she answered, and I said, hey, let's go to the beach. I'm like, this is awesome, the beach, we're in Florida. She's like, I got a headache, I don't want to go to the beach. It's a 40-minute drive, I'm not up for it. No, like, let's really, let's go to the beach. (laughs) And she's like, no, we're not going to the beach. I was like, ugh, how about a park? And so that night, we went to a park, and I proposed. I didn't want to wait. I was not very patient. But here's the deal, it worked out, okay? 12 years in, will I let my kids do that? No. But it worked out for their parents, okay? Other times in my life, patience and experiencing patience hasn't always been, like, funny. It's been a little more serious. When other people have displayed patience with me, it's gone a long way and meant a lot to me. This is a picture of Nate Bush. And Nate was the, youth, the local youth minister in the town that I was living in growing up. And as a high school senior, uh, I was a very angry kid. Did not have any exposure to church. I had a really foul mouth, a bad temper. Really didn't want anything to do with God or church. Really had never even heard the gospel. And I was just mad because of the childhood that i had had to live through. And so I would go to this park on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and this guy would show up. And every Tuesday and Thursday, you always remember the details when they're important, right? I would get a ride home from the park in his beat-up pickup truck that he thought was the coolest thing ever. And he would buy me a Gatorade every Tuesday and Thursday for four months without missing a Tuesday or Thursday, four months. And he just let me wrestle through my questions. I'd ask him questions and he would be so patient and so kind and I was just wrestling with God and with this idea of God and this idea of Jesus and saving me and all these things and he just patiently endured and after four months he, he asked a question that I'll never forget. He said, hey, for four months we've, asked, we've been answering, what's keeping you from making a decision for Jesus? He, the next morning he baptized me. But what I remember about the question that he asked me is that the question wasn't for him. He wasn't just trying to convert another kid. Like, he was really asking because he was patiently waiting for me to be ready. And he wanted to see where I was at. Now, what I learned from this guy that day, I've struggled offering to other people. Like, patience hasn't come easy for me. It's not one of those virtues that you're like, yeah, this is easy, guys. Like, we got this. No, like, what I learned from him that day has been a struggle for me to pass on. I like the way Lewis Smedes describes waiting and patience. The kind of, I resonate with it. He says this, Waiting is our destiny as creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for. It's like, I can't make this happen. I've got to wait. We wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. It's hard to extend patience. It's hard to even receive it at times. It's hard to wait. It's a struggle. Now, what's fascinating about this word that Paul uses in Galatians 5 is that there are multiple words in the Greek language, which is what your New Testament was written in, that can communicate the idea of patience. And the one he uses here is really interesting. Uh, It could be translated very simply, slow to become angry. Older versions of the Bible, maybe your version here in Galatians 5, uh, talks about it as long-suffering. What it literally means is that you're willing to live with a difficult situation for a long period of time. Like, that's no fun, right? Other biblical words, they'll talk about patience in terms of your circumstances or your situation. You're up against something. This one is a little bit different. This word he uses has to do more with your relationships. It's a lot more of a relational word. Like all of the other fruits of the Spirit, it's relational. It's what's going on on the inside. It's not necessarily something you use to face difficulty. It's really about what you're becoming, it's really a soul work. It's really more internal. And you've experienced this, practically speaking. You ever show up to a restaurant that's just slammed? I mean, they're so busy, and then you're told you have to wait. And you're like looking around, you're like, there isn't an inch to move around here. So yeah, I get it. I have to wait. And you're willing to wait. But you show up to that same restaurant, and this person tells you, I'm sorry you have to wait. And you look around, and there's not a lot of people. There's multiple open tables, and there's even three or four tables that haven't been cleaned off yet. In that moment, you're not like, oh yeah, I understand why I have to wait. At that moment, relationally, you're not on the same page as this person and your patience is wearing thin. You see, this idea of long suffering, this idea of uh, slow to become angry, it's a difficult one for us to relate to. But what's even more than this, you dig a little deeper into this word and you come to understand, this this word is written in the passive. Here's why that's a struggle for me. Here's what I struggled with all week. I was kind of excited to get up and preach about patience be able to tell you hey patience the idea of being patient is not being a doormat it's not just sitting by and doing nothing it's not just sitting by and waiting for somebody to be ready it's active and you have to come in alongside their life and tell them what's next and help them and encourage them and then you study this word that paul uses here and you come to understand no actually what it really does mean it means you just kind of sit back and wait (laughs) like that's not fun that's hard to preach The word's passive. In fact, it's often described as resignation to a situation or person that wasn't likely to change. Yay. (laughs) That's great. I was disappointed when I discovered it because I was really excited to preach this to you uh, in terms of being active, because I can get on board with active patience. Right? Patience that's like, don't wait, do. Like I'm all I'm okay with that. Like I can patiently wait while doing something. I have a really hard time patiently waiting for the time to be right because I like to control certain things. One definition of this would say it's an unswerving willingness to await events rather than force them. Preach that. (laughs) What a struggle. But there's something even deeper than that. This same word is used other times in your Bible to describe God's patience with us. And so now it carries an even deeper meaning than simply what we're supposed to do or something that we're supposed to become. It's actually something we've experienced if we pay attention. This is what prompted the apostle Peter to write in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, that one day is not like a day to us, to God. One day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and the Lord is patient. Same word that he uses in Galatians, Galatians 5. The Lord is patience, waiting that none, none should perish, but all would come to repentance. So it's this patience that God displays to us And here's the conclusion I'm coming to in my life. If God is willing to wait for us, and he's willing to display this kind of patience with us, maybe it's not so crazy for us to be expected to display that same kind of patience with one another. You see, God is patient with us because he hopes that we will recognize the love that he has for us. Every time someone's confronted in the New Testament in a godly manner, the purpose is restoration, not proving who's right and wrong. And so when you're patient with somebody, your goal, your hope is that they would see God and see the way that he sees them. And so you're patiently waiting for them to have the eyes to see, for them to see the way that the Lord sees them. And then you get to be a part in helping them see that. But that is really hard. It's more like, you might think of it as, patience is more like redemptive waiting. It's just redemptive waiting. It's this idea that I'm not just sitting around, I'm standing by. I'm just, I'm standing by, I'm alert. And I'm ready. When that opportunity presents itself, I'm going to be ready. I'm not just sitting around kind of being lazy. I'm standing by, and I'm waiting, hoping for this redemptive patience to take place. Now, one of the best ways for you to understand this is to look at the way that God has actually displayed this instead of just what he's called us to. Because here's the thing. God's not going to call us to something that he hasn't already done. Okay? So this patience, God already has in him. But here's what's fascinating. Maybe you've heard this argument. I've heard people say, hey, there's, when I read the Bible, there's the God of the Old Testament, and then there's the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament seemed pretty grumpy and angry. He's kind of mad at everybody and judgmental. But then the God of the New Testament is more modern and gracious and kind. The problem with that is this. None of the writers of the Bible interacted with God that way. No, they never saw God as uh, one way and then another way. In fact, they're the ones that wrote God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's always been the same. And so for us to understand what he's calling us to, we can look all the way back to the Old Testament and see how God interacted with his people. Do you remember the story of Exodus? It's a story in your Old Testament, in your Bible, where God's people, the Israelites, had been held captive for 400 years by the Egyptians. And for 400 years, they were kind of pressed down and oppressed by these people. And then God uses a man named Moses. Almost there. Moses, right? And Moses delivers them from the Pharaoh. Then they're delivered from captivity, and they're taken into the desert. They're taken into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And what should have taken just a few months takes 40 years in in the desert, in the wilderness, because they had a lot to learn. But you watch how they interact with God. The same God that just delivered them from slavery, the same God that just delivered them from oppression, the same God that had promised them where they were headed was going to be an incredible land that has everything that they could ever want, and yet they continually betray Him, they continually walk away from Him. As a matter of fact, there's this one scene in Exodus where Moses, the leader of these peoples on the mountain, meeting with God, meeting with the God that just delivered them. And what do the people do? They grow impatient, we're tired of waiting for God. So Aaron, the brother of Moses, they said, Aaron, would you get all the gold together and make us this golden statue, this golden calf, so we have something to worship, because we're tired of waiting. Moses comes down from the mountain. It's like, are you kidding me? You couldn't wait? I was meeting with God, the creator of the universe. You couldn't wait a little while. Are you kidding? And so there's consequences for their actions. Ultimately, God says, no, I'm more patient than that. Come back up and meet with me. And while meeting with God again, we get this beautiful verse in Exodus 34, verse 6, that describes God. And it says this. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, and then what does it say? Slow to anger. That's our phrase. Patient, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And you would think, after experiencing the patient love of God, that it would have changed them. But over and over and over again, you watch people continually walk away from him and betray him. Remember the story of Jonah in your Old Testament. Come across this this man, Jonah, and God calls him to go to a place called Nineveh, and he doesn't want to go, and instead, what does he critique God on? God, why are you being so patient with these people? Should you not just judge them? Should you not just destroy them? They don't love you. They don't listen to you. Just destroy them. And he critiqued God on his patience until he finally realized God wasn't just being patient with Nineveh. God was being patient with Jonah. Jonah until he was ready to mature and grow. God was never sitting around with Jonah, but he was standing by, waiting for him to mature and grow. This week, um, we do this thing at the church called the Read Scripture app. If you, if you want to download it and join us, just jump right in. It's a really neat way to read through the Bible, and we're doing this together as a church. Well, this week, you're going to read about a story about someone named Hosea. You're going to read the book of Hosea. And Hosea is a story about um, a wife who's unfaithful and a husband who's patiently enduring over and over and over again. But it points to a bigger picture, a picture of God. And here's you're going to read on Wednesday of this coming week out of Hosea chapter 11, and here's what it says describing God. It says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Remember, we just talked about that. The more they were called, the more they went away. They continually left me. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who took Ephraim to, taught Ephraim to walk and took them up by their arms and they did not know that I had healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I want you to, I mean, if you've got a Bible, highlight that. Despite their continual leaving me, I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. Slow to anger steadfast in his love, enduring, patient with people, not sitting around but standing by, waiting for them to recognize all that he has done in their life, continually showing his patience and his love. This is the God of the Old Testament. The same one we see as grumpy and judgmental and angry in our culture is anything but. He's continually patient and loving and enduring and standing by and waiting for his people to be ready to see all that he has done for them. Well, in addition to looking at how God models this, it's always good to look at how Jesus models what he's called us to live out as well because Jesus modeled everything he's called us to do. And so Jesus himself was patient. I think one of the best examples of the patience of Jesus comes in his interactions with his close friend, Peter. Now, Peter was Jesus' right-hand man. He was loud and bold and oftentimes got himself into trouble with his mouth. Never met anybody else like that, right? And, and continually had to like correct what he said. And he was just always going after things, and always talked about how he was going to defend Jesus and be there for him. Until the night that Jesus was betrayed, where do we find Peter? This bold leader that said he would never leave or betray Jesus betrays him three times in one night. Three opportunities to defend Jesus, and he denies him, and then he watches him die. This teacher, this leader that he proclaimed to love and want to defend and be there for, and he watches him die. And then, toward the end of John's gospel, we see Peter is on a, on a boat, lonely, upset with himself. And then we watch Jesus and Peter, after Jesus does this little thing we like to call resurrection, he comes back from the dead after being betrayed, and, and now he gets to interact with Peter again post-resurrection. And I would love to open the Bible every once in a while and just read Jesus respond to Peter the way I would. I just think it'd be really cool. Not... In the long run, I understand why it doesn't happen, and I'll get to that in a moment. But how cool would it be to open it up and and Jesus say, hey Peter, come here. We need to talk. <laughs> like, hey, what was that about? Not betraying me three times? Take a seat, son. Let me tell you something. Who was right and who was wrong, Peter? Like, that's not what he does though. You read the response of Jesus, and I don't know about you, but it humbles me. It humbles me because it's not the way, it's not the patience I would have extended. Look at the interaction they have, John 21. When they'd finished breakfast, so he makes them a meal, not how I would have led into it, but he makes them a meal. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A little bit abstract, what he's talking about. See, he had told Peter earlier on that, hey, you're gonna be one of the leaders in the church. You're gonna be, you're gonna be a part of this. And then Peter betrays him three times and feels like, no way I can be a part of this. And in his patient Long-suffering, his slowness to anger, and his deep love for Peter, Jesus restores him not once, not twice, but all three times, making up for all three times that he had betrayed him. And he completely restores him. He completely gives him back everything that he needed to understand that he was loved and cared for. You see, he was intentional. He was patient. Every time he had to confront somebody, the goal was their restoration, not pointing out who's right and wrong. Not for his own sake, but for them. Right, picture this, Peter later on in his life, if you don't think this impacted him, think about how Peter would write, First Peter chapter 2, he writes these words, I didn't plan to include this in the sermon, and then I was reading this, I'm like, no, this impacted Peter's life forever, this patient experience he had with Jesus, for what credit is it if when you sin and you're beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to those who have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he goes on to say, he did that for you. And then he writes back again in a second letter called 2 Peter in chapter 3, and he said, God is patient with us. God is patient with us. He's standing by, waiting for us to get it so that we can take our next step. As we allow the Holy Spirit to allow us to experience that with God, he then calls us to offer it to other people. So the question is, what about you? What about when life doesn't go your way, when circumstances don't line up well? What about when someone betrays you or talks bad about you? What about when uh, somebody isn't treating you well? How do you respond? What about when you don't like something or you're frustrated, you're irritated, and the pressure's mounting on your life? How do you respond to the people that are around you? Do you constantly look to what you deserve because you've been mistreated or the pressure's heavy on you? Or are you constantly looking for ways that you can extend this patient graciousness that you've experienced into the lives of the people that are around you? Jesus had this incredible story that he told, and that's what I want to look at here briefly. And it lines up with something that... uh, a preacher that I really admire, his name is John Orberg, and he says this, he summarizes all of this. He says, Look, this is spiritual life. This is spiritual life. To place the soul, your soul, inside, under the surface, your soul, each moment in the presence and care of God. Just place it in his hands. Jesus tells this dynamic story in Matthew chapter seven. It's the at the end of a sermon he preached that we call the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people would have been hearing this. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew chapter seven. And he tells this story. What's fascinating about this story is when you study the original languages, you can always get deeper, and there's always some really cool thing to point out to people for context. There's none of that here. What you see is what you get. It's a very plain story, very easy to understand. And here's how he finishes this great sermon: Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat on that house, but it didn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell and great, great was the fall of it. So there's actually two stories that Jesus tells here. One about a wise man, one about a foolish man. One of the things that you can do to kind of figure out why he told this story is you take these two stories and you line them up right next to each other. So what are the similarities and what are the differences? You find the variable, and the variable is the point of the story. So as we line up these two stories, some of the things that we learn about these stories is this. Everyone builds a house. Both people build a house. You could replace the word house with life. So what I would say is everybody is building a life. And that life is built on the choices that you make each and every day. Every single one of us is building a life. Some of us beautifully. Some of us badly. Some of us on purpose. Some of us are stumbling into it. Some of us are conscious. Some of us are are leaning into the power of God. Others are leaning into their own power and abilities. But here's the thing about every single person that you meet. Everyone's building a life. Everyone's building a house. We're all building a house. And it happens to be built upon the decisions that we're making, the choices that we make. And so many of us Right, we we try to uh, avoid certain decisions or certain decisions we don't even think about. Like, how many times are we thinking about the words we're going to say or what we're going to do or or what our our calendar looks like? Sometimes we're just going through the motions. Other times we know there's really big decisions that need to be made, but we ignore them or we put them off. Like, am I actually going to deal with the tension that's in my marriage that I think is a deeper problem, but it's going to be hard to talk about? Am I going to deal with this addiction that I seem to be developing? Am I going to deal with this pornography addiction that I might have or this desire to look at it? Or am I going to deal with this drinking that I've been doing that I know deeper down is a bigger problem than I'm letting on, but it's a problem. We try to ignore these decisions, which in and of itself becomes a decision that has consequences. That's just the way life is. Every single person is building a house. Every single person is making decisions that will build on their house. That's not the variable. That's not the difference in the story. The next thing that you notice about this story that's similar with the wise man and the foolish man is not only is everybody building a house and everybody building a life, but everybody faces a storm. Every single person in life is going to face a storm. And here's the thing there's no such thing as storm avoidance. This is not a story about trying to find better weather or trying to get away from the possibility of the storm. I grew up in Florida. I now live in Indiana. Where's the better weather? It's in Florida, right? Like, thank God for Florida, minus sinkholes, okay? Like, it's great, minus the sinkholes. It's not about trying to go from Indiana to Florida to get better weather. That's not what it's about. It's about something much deeper than that. See, everybody's going to face a storm in life, a difficulty that comes your way. And here's what I've learned about the storms in my life. The strength of the storm reveals the strength of the foundation. Every time. Every single time. The storm wins. It's going to reveal the foundation that your life is built on. And and here's here's the variable, though. The difference in these two stories is not building a home. It's not facing a storm. It's the foundation that you choose to build your life on. Will it be Jesus? What he has said about how to live, what he has instructed you to do, the way he wants you to live your life, or will it be your own strength, your own ability, your own experiences, your own self-help books? Is it going to be what you want, or is it going to be what he has asked of you to do? Anybody ever heard the phrase, it's all or nothing? Anybody? Four of us? Okay, well, the rest of you, that's a real phrase. Uh, <laughs> it's all or nothing. Here's the thing about that phrase. There are times in my life where I wish that wasn't true. Sure, I would love to have discipleship about halfway and then be able to like, kind of pull back. I'd love to, to have godly stewardship of my money, but like, only until the bank account gets stretched. I, I would love to have patience, but only until somebody violates me or hurts me or, or does something against me, right? Here's the problem, though. You can't live in half a house, Can't. You can't live in half a house. And Jesus has called us to build on a foundation that takes place under the surface, inside of us, as the Holy Spirit makes his his presence known in our life and kind of stirs us, stirs our attention, stirs our affections, stirs our character, and builds in us what God needs us to be. And so the question that we have to really answer is this: how can we make sure that patience is a part of what we're putting together? To become the foundation of our life, there are other parts of it. There are other things in the foundation, but the Bible's telling us now that patience is an essential part of what forms the foundation. And so it's really hard to give you like one thing, but I'm gonna try. I read a quote, and I've been wrestling with this quote for weeks. Anyone on our church staff could tell you, I've been wrestling with this quote. I've been saying it in a lot of different environments. I've been really thinking through it, and it's been really difficult for me. I describe myself in terms of patience the way the Apostle Paul described himself as the chief of all sinners. I'm not good at it, but this has been working me over the last few weeks. A Christian philosopher named Dallas Willard, he said this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And here's what he said. Jesus was very busy, very busy. Look at all the people he interacted with. He had to heal some people. He had to teach the crowd. He had to teach the disciples. He had to meet one-on-one with some of the disciples. He had to go and meet with all the religious and, and political leaders. He met with sinners. He went to people's homes. He was constantly traveling. Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. Never in a hurry. Each time he healed somebody, he was present in that moment. He wasn't on to the next appointment. He did not make them feel as though they were insignificant. In fact, it was his presence that really healed their souls. He looked them in the eyes. When he taught the disciples, he went the extra mile and explained things. He displayed patience with them. Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. So how do we ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives? Here's one thing you can do, and you make this commitment. You say, I will choose what I value most over what I want right now. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he was dying on the cross. He chose you that he valued more than he valued himself in that moment. And we know that because what did he say in the garden before going to the cross? Father, if possible, take this cup from me. But in this moment, I will choose what I value most over what I want right now. That is how we develop patience. So you have to figure out what it is you value the most. What is it you're building your life on? Is it your own desires and wants? Is it your own need to be right or to feel justified or to get people back? Or is it... Your desire to see God glorified in your life and the lives of the people that are around you. Here's what I know you cannot say that you value people when you're never present. You cannot say that you value godly stewardship when you're never generous. You cannot say that you value godly discipline when you're lazy. You cannot say that you value integrity and character when you never follow through on what you say you're going to do. And the moment you have a chance because you've had a bad day or you feel pressure, you start talking bad about other people. You can't have integrity if that's your actions. And you cannot claim to value patience when you're constantly in a hurry. You just can't. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. It's part of the foundation. This really is the way of Jesus. This is the way of Jesus. Sometimes busy, but never hurried. Consistently patient. Always intentional pursuit of God. Is that a part of the foundation that you're building your life on? Is that what you're investing in? Because the storm will come, and the strength of the storm will always reveal the foundation. Don't have a sinkhole. Be patient, endure, slow to anger, long-suffering. Be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we've had this morning and thank you for how your word just meets us and shakes things up in our hearts and in our lives. My prayer for each of us as a church family is that we would pursue Jesus, that we would truly pay attention to the patience that's been offered to us in Christ so that when we're called to offer it to other people, it's coming from the right place. God, I want patience to be something that describes us not because it's an obligation, but because it's a reality. It's who we are. Father, one of the joys of life is actually enjoying who you're making us to be. And the fruits of the Spirit are a byproduct of how you're shaping us and molding us as your Spirit moves in our lives. And so, God, my prayer for each of us is we would be a church characterized by godly patience, but because we want to glorify you and because we've experienced your loving patience in our lives. So as we leave this place, may we understand that we are sent to offer patience because it has first been offered to us. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.